GIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF indeed. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and that only happens because of the good graces and technical expertise of bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you today? Doing very well. Uh... Nailbiter last night at the old new Lumen Field. If you know, catch another name day. change. Yes, the Lumen Field for uh, where the Seahawks play now. Very interesting. Yeah. Yes, without the deafening roar this year. Actually, they pipe that in. I don't know if you know how they broadcast it on TV. They actually pull in the audio and they play it there locally. Okay, so but I mean is. Is it anything like what it used to be where you could actually raise the seismograph at UW? Probably not that in-depth. However, <laughs> it is pretty impressive on how they do it. Apparently, just real fast, like in all of the stadiums all over, they've taken years of all of the crowd noise and have simulated similar items over those years and have rebroadcasted those in the stadium or stadiums currently. So there's a lot of chance that you know we've done in the last couple of years that they they put them back onto the field for the players while they play even though no one's there that is wild a mm -hmm. simulated experience yeah. it's rather like a football dreamscape <laughs> oh look what you did right there you you you're good you you you're good you you're good you're good growing big dreams Manifesting your heart's desires through 12 secrets of the imagination. We have Robert Moss with us today, Suzanne. We do. Let's bring this man on. Robert Moss has been a dream traveler since doctors pronounced him clinically dead in a hospital in Hobart, Tasmania, when he was three years old. From his experiences in many worlds, he created his school of active dreaming. His original synthesis of modern dream work and ancient shamanic and mystical practices for journeying to realms beyond the physical. He leads popular workshops all over the world, including a three-year training for teachers of active dreaming and online courses for the Shift Network. A former lecturer in ancient history at the Australian National University, he is a New York Times bestselling novelist poet, journalist, and independent scholar. His website is mossdreams.com. We'll be sure to give that out before the end of the hour. And this is the second book we've read of his. The first one was The Boy Who Died and Came Back a Few Years Ago. So we are very pleased to bring him back once again. Hello, Robert Moss. Good to be with you, Suzanne and Gary. Good to be dreaming with you. A delight to have you with us, Robert. And let me, I didn't even anticipate that I would be bringing this up, but it's just coming to my conscious forebrain right now, Robert. So let me throw this at you. With your experience there in Tasmania, part of the great Australian culture, they're at the bottom of the world. I'm curious to know, and I've heard many stories about the Aboriginal dreams, the way, the way they look at it, the dream time, in fact there, which has to do with uh, before the beginning of the world as we know it. But I'd like to bring us far more up to date. Robert, when you were there in Tasmania or any part of Australia, did you find yourself dreaming at night about the many, many ways in which lethality presents itself with the wildlife 
of Australia. I'm curious to know because I have, and I've never been to Australia. I will go to bed at night, and this has happened to me several times. And I'll find myself walking along some beach in Australia, and I dare not go in the water, I'm telling myself, because of the irukandji or the, the jellyfish, which can be almost instantly fatal there, or the great white shark, the white pointers, as the Aussies call them. I may be walking through a forest, and I go, watch out for the Sydney funnel webs. Oh, my God, and, and don't touch a platypus. They're cute, but they can spur you. And all of these things that I could go on, a list as long as your arm about all the things. You're turning that, Australian fauna into a horror show, Gary. Well, exactly. I, I, I agree. There's a lot of fear involved. This wouldn't be a Australia, Australia does have more things that bite and sting you than any other country, has more kinds of snakes, has more kinds of spiders. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to dream we were living in Queensland uh, of the need to check the boots or the shoes in the morning in case a funnel web spider had uh, had taken up residence inside one of them. I knew that in ordinary reality, but I remember once I dreamed the need not to just put the shoe on, and indeed there was a funny funnel web spider inside it. So that was a kind of advisory that dreams can give us. I also dreamed with the animals and birds in a different sense. I dreamed with the sea eagle, magnificent aquatic raptor native to the northeastern coast of Australia and to the north coast of Scotland, where my father's people come from. And that bird became my ally in my dreaming. I'd find myself flying on its wings. It is the preferred power animal of the Zogo Lei, who is the shaman of the Torres Straits Islanders in that area. So that was one of my allies. I dream of an Aboriginal shaman, a fast walker, who could walk with Big Red, a kangaroo. He could take strides across this earth and move faster than humans are supposed to be. I love the flying foxes. I love the flying foxes of Australia who are also important. I love the dolphins. I even like the sharks. I eat a certain number of Australians, but I, I had a sort of soft spot for the great whites of Australia. And the funny thing is, I've been an expat most of my life. I haven't lived in Australia since I was 22 years old. I've gone back a bit and I've gone back in dreams. But some of the native fauna of my native country pursue me. For example, if I have colds or flu, uh, an echidna, you know, the echidna, it's a spiny, spiny anteater thing, but it's not actually a spiny anteater. It's unique to Australia. It's one of these things that early Europeans couldn't even depict or describe. They were so strange. They thought they'd entered some strange dream state. An echidna, which is good at sucking out bugs or insects, uh, will turn up and it will sort of suck the bugs or insects out of me. And sometimes it shapeshifts into an Aboriginal woman. So there's an ally which a shaman would understand, which an Aboriginal spirit man or spirit woman would understand, functioning across time, across dimensions, across oceans, I guess, because uh, some of Australia lives with me. But don't say way back then, Gary, for, for the Aboriginals, the dream time is the all at once. That's what they call it. They call it the all at once. It's not just what happened back then. It's about a fundamental realm of reality, more important and deeper than the ordinary world which accessed might enable us to remember what life is all about. It's as important as that. Well, let me ask you then, if it's, it seems to me, if you have such a rich history of Aboriginal culture, there must be a tremendous oral tradition and the written as well, so that this way of looking at the world and in fact the universe is passed down through the generations. Well, yes, except that there's a slight interruption called European settlement, a slight interruption called alcohol, slight interruption called genocide, slight particularly in Tasmania, where the whites tried to kill all the Aborigines by marching across the island, shooting everybody with a dark skin. That is part of Australia's 
horrific uh, story of race relations. And Australia's kind of recovered from it now, but there's an interruption. I mean, so many Aborigines died that the lineages were erased in some cases. Yes, you get out to the you get out to the Cookajar in the Western Desert of West Australia. They're still doing things the old way, including sharing dreams the old way. And by the way, there are people who don't have the men's business versus women's business entrenched the way it is in some Aboriginal tribes, which I find a bit difficult. I'm no expert on all of this, but because I'm an Australian and some that lives in me, and because I dream, I've had some important connections with it. It was a series of dreams that led me to encounter with a spirit man of the Mananjali, who's an Aboriginal people of Southeast Queensland, who showed me a place of the dreaming that I had dreamed before I went there, the dreaming of the bull eel, talk about fauna. This is an eel the size of a telegraph pole <laughs> that I had seen thrashing in the waters, and it is the first of all creatures in the creation mythology of that people. Because of my dreams, he invited me to sit with the elders, the made men, uh, the, the men of high degree of the Southeastern Queensland tribes. So I know as an Australian that something of your native land and its traditions, pre-European, can live with you. And I also know, as they know, that to get into this stuff for real, you must have the right passport. And the passport is the right dream. That's the passport that counts for dreaming culture. You must dream your way in. You can't just do it as an outsider, taking photographs and reading books. So the oral tradition is central. And in Aboriginal storytelling, there are at least four levels of meaning to everything that is being said. So they're an outsider and sound like some crazy stuff from the childhood of the world. But for those who know how to read, read through the veils, to go through the veils of, of presentation, uh, you might be right in touch with the quick of meaning, with, with the heart of meaning in, in, in the worldview of a whole culture. Robert, in, in your book, Growing Big Dreams, one of the things that you talk about is symbolism. And Gary and I were having a conversation, and I was wondering about the cultural influence on the symbolism, because it, it seems to me that the people, um, Australian, Aboriginal, not Aboriginal, versus uh, another culture, would actually be dreaming about different things, and the symbolism would be different. If we're, if we're looking for a symbol here, we might see a billboard, we might see something on TV, we might hear a, a, a song come on and say, aha, there's my answer. But those wouldn't mean anything to somebody that isn't in this culture, whereas they could have a, a porcupine cross the road and it wouldn't mean a thing to us, but it might be very important to them. So how much does culture influence the the what it is that we're dreaming about the the symbolism and what we're well, dreaming about well if okay it's a good question i mean if culture is a closed system it will influence it a great deal i used to shop at an italian grocery store they made their own pasta and their own sauce in troy new york rundown industrial city and old josephina who'd come from sicily would love to talk, talk to me about dreams she'd say i dreamed of a horse last night you know that's so bad because a horse is a demon and i'd look at it in, her, in what she'd learned from her grandmother and says, the horse is a demon. And then she says, I, I, I have a very good dream, Robert. The house was so dirty. There was crap all over the place. And that's good because crap and dirt mean money is coming. You know, there you are. There's a culture-specific tradition, very family-oriented. If it works for you, okay, this is it's coded in this way, and the code works for you. But okay, fine. But I'd noticed it was breaking down with her because we're part of a we're part of a universal society now. No one is just sitting in the Sicilian kitchen anymore hearing about horses or demons. So I'd noticed as she shared dreams with me, the old cultural walls were cracking, and it was all opening up. So we live in a universal society, 
and there's going to be no no declarative set of symbols that works for everybody and even people from closed systems are going to find that their dreaming opens up with aboriginals symbolism doesn't necessarily matter that much they're very literalistic about dreams in dreams you go traveling okay you saw that you saw that you saw that animal okay where did you see it and was it part of the landscape that's associated with that animal you with those people when what who where they play dream detectives I have a very social understanding of dreams. The dream, the dream is not just about symbolism. You go to places, you receive visitations. And by the way, because my style of dreaming is both very modern and very ancient, I had, I'm very sympathetic to this point of view. I think we need to be more literal about dreams and more symbolic about everything else, more symbolic about waking life. In my dreams, I'm often out and about. I'm social. I'm with other people. Sometimes they're people living at a distance from me. Sometimes they're people who've died to this world and I'm in their realm, interacting with the departed. Sometimes in a, I'm in a parallel life doing things that I can't do in this age of pandemic from my own home right now. Sometimes I'm in fantastical mythic landscapes, which are real in, in their own sense of reality. So, yes, there are symbolic dreams, and I'm a symbolist about everything, but it's it's ridiculously limited to look at dreams simply as symbolic experiences. You went somewhere. Someone visited you. Where did you go? I'm teaching a workshop every night in my dreams right now, and I can't get on planes and do it in person in all the countries where I normally do. And these often feel like absolutely real experiences. And guess what? Some other people will report, Robert, I was in a workshop with you last night. It was fun. You experimented with that new technique. So dreaming is more, far more, than the average Western psychological approach appreciates. Do, do you make the distinction between lucid dreams and dreams that are like movies? Because I seem to make that distinction for myself, where some dreams feel like I'm watching them and other dreams feel like I'm more in them and more active. Do you, with your decades of dreaming, what do you make those kinds of distinctions? Well, it's always interesting to see whether you're more of a observer or more of a participant in dreams and in ordinary life too, Suzanne. One of the games I play is I compare the situation and behavior of my dream self to my waking self. If I'm an observer, well, do I take the stance of an observer in situations in waking life more than that of a participant? If I know I'm an observer in a dream and I'm maybe watching a movie production, a movie being produced for me, and there are dreams that absolutely feel like that, absolutely feel like that. I think we all have a film production crew behind the curtain of this world making movies for us. But if I become aware of it, if I start becoming lucid inside the dream, I have options. I, don't, I can get out of my spectator seat and I can step through the screen or onto the stage and I can become star and scriptwriter and director of my own movie. I do that very frequently. I'll often start out with an entertainment and then I get into the action or because I'm a boy and I love playing with toy soldiers as a boy, I'll start looking at what seems like a diorama with toy soldiers laid out in battalions, there's a cavalry, etc. Then I look more carefully and they're living figures. They're not necessarily soldiers, not necessarily about war. It's about life. It's about villages, about communities. And then I can shrink myself if I choose, becoming lucid inside the dream, and I can play among them. I can become an actor in the scenes that are evolving here, or I can be like a UN observer. So we have all these options. And uh, growing lucidity about what is going on, growing consciousness of the possibility above all, the reality that you always have choice if you're prepared to exercise it about what you're doing, what you're watching, which way you're turning in any state of consciousness, that's the heart of the matter. I mean, people jump up and down getting excited about dream lucidity. Uh, I'm, I think it's a natural condition. It's not as difficult to attain as some people think. One of the easy ways to become a lucid dreamer, for example, 
is to spend more time in the liminal state between sleep and awake. I have a chapter about that in the new book, the hypnagogic zone, the twilight zone. You're not awake, you're not asleep, you're somewhere in between. The best advice about this comes from Tinkerbell the fairy in the stories of Peter Pan. It's from a Hollywood movie, not the original book. Tinkerbell says to Peter when he's sad because his fairy friend is going away, Tink says, look for me in the place between sleep and awake where you remember dreaming. There I will always love you. There I will wait for you. What's this about? It's about the fact that dreaming isn't either just about what happens during sleep, whether you're lucid or not, or alternatively about shamanic dreaming or meditation. There's a drifty liminal threshold in between state of consciousness, which historically is where many of the great breakthroughs have been made. In my book, The Secret History of Dreaming, I talk about how many scientific breakthroughs have taken place in this drifty state. It's a launch pad for lucid dreaming. It's a place where you are quite psychic and intuitive. It's a place for communication of an easy kind with inner and transpersonal guides. And in terms of lucid dreaming, you start out conscious, images are rising and falling in your mind, you see a certain landscape, you enter a certain kind of encounter, you stay with it, you're, you're entering a lucid dream from a lucid state, and you can maybe retain what happens during that adventure. Well, thank you for that explication, Robert. That was wonderful. Let me give you another conversational prompt. Robert Lewis Stevenson. Oh, yes. And the concept of the brownies. I yes. found that fascinating. Yes. People get excited when they say you can order brownies up in your dreams. Of course, many of them are thinking, oh, gee, I'd love to have a little chocolate cookie right now. Well, yeah, uh, chocolate. Yeah, chocolate. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote a, a chapter of the book called A Chapter on Dreams, actually, when he was staying in a hard winter up, up on Saranac Lake, which is about 90 minutes drive from my house in upstate New York. And he wrote about all his, all the central role of dreaming and all of his literary activity, but the most fun part of his narrative was about how he says more than half the work of composing his stories is done for him in his sleep or in near sleep states by the brownies. He's brow, his brownies. These are his literary dream elves who do all the work when they're completely amoral. They, they like their stories hot, 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 he says. And, and, and he attributes his success in writing many of his stories to all the work that is done for him while he's sleeping or dozing by his brownies. So the idea that all of us, whatever we find creative in life, can order up our own equivalents of RLS's brownies to assist us and do some of the work for us is very, is very attractive to me. You know, Why make life harder for ourselves if we need to, if we can have solutions delivered in our sleep and even half of a literary draft? Well, let's go for it. Absolutely. And it also speaks to something else, Robert, this idea of the brownies. I have dabbled. I can't say I've done it in a systematic way, and probably I should. But when I think of brownies, I also think of it as a means or a mechanism by which I can direct my dreams. I'm, I'm ordering them up, if you will. And if I am directing them in that way, whenever I have gone to bed with the intention of dreaming about something, maybe it was solving a problem or finding an opportunity, I really never come away empty. Well, um, I don't, uh, do you, you, maybe you're bolder than I am, Gary. I wouldn't think of it as controlling or commanding. Uh, requesting would be the way I would look at it. I note, I mean, I often set intentions for dreams and sometimes I get something that, that seems quite remote from the intention or something that really throws the attention back in my face saying, this isn't a worthy or worthwhile intention, think again. 
So, so my my dream crew are not compliant in the sense of being willing to act in a servile way and take orders and instructions. We have a creative engagement. When I talk about my dream crew, of course, to some extent, I'm talking about my own creative self, my own creative source, and about aspects of myself or of anyone else approaching these things that are wiser and maybe more creative than the ordinary everyday mind, and also about the mentors and inner teachers we may discover. Yeats, who has been one of my teachers, the poet, yes, the poet, and he actually was directly the guide for one of my books called The Dreamer's Book of the Dead. He always wanted to write a Western book of the dead, and uh, Yeats saw his personality essence or the part of me that was like that is like Yeats assist me throughout that book in a way I write about very openly. So Yeats, for example, Yeats has been a, a tremendous inspiration to me, both through his writings and my dreams of him and my conscious encounters with him in liminal states, in shamanic journeys and so on. Yeats talked about the mingling of minds, the coming together of minds, and he said how affinity shared shared passion for a certain line of study or creative work, for example, can bring great intellects, great intelligences from across time and place to the support of the person who's doing the work of creation or study right now. I believe this to be true. I believe that if we put ourselves in a certain line of research or study or worthwhile activity, we attract different energies, we attract different intellects. But if we regard us as hitching them to a sled and cracking the whip and telling them to go forward on a path we've determined, I don't think it's going to work out very well in the long run. The sled will eventually be overturned because the greater intellects uh, might be prepared to work with us in a cooperative way. But they are not interested in words like control or command. So that's my gentle response. I'll just, Suzanne's going to say something here in a moment of my response to you is it makes a great deal of sense what you're saying, Robert, because even though I can recall uh, reading about William James, who felt that our interactions with the subconscious were rather like, especially when we're doing it in a conscientious manner, are rather like placing a claim before the universe. And quite often that claim is honored or fulfilled. But this idea of being demanding doesn't appeal to me either. I use direct in a, in a softer way because what I've found is that if I take on the attitude, let's say, that I am going to get my rights or I'm going to get my way and I'm demanding, whether I'm dreaming about it or not, in my daily life, what I tend to do if I'm in that frame of mind is to encounter a lot of equally demanding people with whom I will have to deal. Uh -huh. Well, we can certainly we can certainly uh, seek to order up dreams. We can certainly set intentions. I mean, the, the old name for this is dream incubation, which was typically done with some ritual and some sacrifice. But today, in a very colloquial way, we can set an intention. I often simply set the intention, show me what I need to see. And then pausing, thinking about that, not wanting to be swamped with all the crazy stuff going on around the country and the world right now, I might say. Uh, show me what I need to see and the best I can do, <laughs> or something like that. I will show me something which which I can use for some benefit for someone, not don't just open me to the whole field of, of nonsense and bad news. Often these days, because we've been in this shut, these shutdown times, I will simply say, I'd like to have some fun tonight. Or because I'm a storyteller and a writer, I will say, I'd like a fresh story. I'd like to bring through a fresh story. 
And uh, that, that's the extent to which I'm sort of ordering up a dream. If I have a specific uh, theme on my mind, which I'm concerned about, however, I won't hesitate to ask for specific dream guidance on that theme. Well, my mind goes back to what was happening when I was changing my life half a lifetime ago, moving from being a commercially best-selling thriller writer to becoming a dream teacher, for which there's no obvious career track in this culture, and going through all the years of adjustment and bumpy uh, transition that were involved. At one point, realizing that you know money wasn't streaming in the way it used to, I asked for a dream of, of clarity, a dream of clarity on what's happening. And in my dream, I'm at a, a customs station. It's like Heathrow Airport. It's like English customs. And uh, they, I'm, they, seem, they seem to be taking a lot of time checking me through. I mean, they're not giving me a really hard time, just very slow and very boring. And I look in parallel to me, there is this voluptuous blonde in furs with Louis Vuitton luggage. And they're, 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 they're adoring her. They're treating her like a goddess. And she looks at me and she blows me a kiss and she says, bye for now, darling. Maybe we'll meet again. And I woke up laughing. I understood that my happy hooker, the part of me that was prepared to do things for, for a big check from commercial New York City publishing, was parting company with me for now. Maybe not forever. Maybe we would come together and have a partnership later on. So that was a dream of clarity. I have no doubt but that my dream producers, that film production crew we were talking about earlier, put this together because I'd asked to see where I was in terms of my relationship with money and publishing. They gave me a little staged for me drama which showed me how things were. And I accepted it and I loved it and gave me a sense of humor, which actually helped me to go forward in a rather difficult package. I was saying goodbye to my happy hooker, but we could meet up again. It's break time about now, Suzanne. You've got something on the tip of your tongue. I can wait till after the break. Why don't we do that? And just on the other side of the break, we like to call it the marketing piece. Robert Moss can tell you more about his books. He is prolific. He is profound. And he loves to talk to people about his ideas and his research. So why don't we get through the next couple of minutes and on the other side, more fun with Robert Moss, author of Growing Big Dreams, Manifesting Your Heart's Desires Through 12 Secrets of the Imagination. We are Manson Mitchell and you are tuned in to Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. 
Every two minutes, a child becomes a victim of sex trafficking in the U.S. It's happening right now. Don't turn off the radio or change the channel. Don't cover your kids' ears, no matter how much you want to ignore it. Child trafficking is real. In fact, it's happening in your town. And you know what our greatest weapon against child trafficking is? It's our children. It's time to act with PACT. That's Partners Against Child Trafficking. PACT works to teach students how to identify the warning signs of child trafficking so they can help other vulnerable kids around them. PACT student ambassadors receive in-depth training on the issue and design a project to raise awareness, reduce victimization, and disrupt demand. Visit PACT.city to start donating today. That's P-A-C-T C-I-T-Y. And for as little as $5 a month, you can help end child exploitation. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Robert Moss, creator of the School of Active Dreaming, to talk about his latest book, Growing Big Dreams, and how to use our imaginations in very practical ways. On Saturday, Teresa Fieberts, a minister who teaches the science of mind philosophy, talks about making the attitude of gratitude a daily practice in your life. Bringing you fascinating talk one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Find our app in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store and take us with you wherever you go. Alternative Talk AM 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Robert Moss, author of many things. The one that we're holding in our hands is Growing Big Dreams, Manifesting Your Heart's Desire through 12 Secrets of the Imagination. Robert Moss, if people would like to find out about what else you've written or how they can be in touch with you, what is your website and anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, the website is mossdreams, M-O-S-S, streams, plural, mossdreams.com, and you'll get a, a guide to all my relevant books and recordings there. I, these days, because of the pandemic, I'm mostly teaching online. I hope it will open out again next year. And I teach many courses online. I teach many adventurous courses for the Shift Network. We've, we've got one going on now. You can get into it. We've done two classes. You can catch up with recordings and transcripts. And next week is a Thanksgiving break week, so you can catch up. It's called Dreaming Dream Journeys Beyond the Veil. And it's about two things, lifting the veil of ordinary perception to see into the deeper reality and lifting the veil between the living and the dead to get a handle on what happens after physical death and talk to the departed. It's a wild course. We have a large international group of creative spirits supporting each other's journeys. I teach other online courses. So, you know, those are starting points, and I hope you're going to feel impelled to join this dream adventure because so much fun and laughter and guidance and healing are waiting for you. Oh, that's great. Thank you, mossdreams.com. You know, when you were mentioning, uh, you know, working from home now and doing things online, one of the things that kind of struck us in your book did last time too and that is how much traveling you have done <laughs> have you ever logged in how many millions of miles you must have gone around I, I, the earth I have, to, I have to tell you it's quite funny when it came to editing this book which was mostly written before the pandemic really seized our minds and seized our consciousness it's funny i didn't have to update it very much i think the victor frankel stuff and the introduction set the tone perfectly for that but when it came to editing it one of the main things i had to do is put my air travel stories in the past tense in other words, not start by saying, when I get on a plane, but start in the days when I get on an airplane every week, because um, 
uh, I used to try. I, I try. I traveled to Europe at least seven times a year, and I traveled to the West Coast and the East Coast at least seven times a year. And I was teaching at least forty depth workshops, by which I mean two or three full days, and trainings, by which I mean five or six full days, every year. In addition to all the online courses, I don't know how. Looking back. I got by, particularly when you think of how grueling air travel can be, starting from a small airport like mine, getting to Prague, a place where I love to teach, where I was supposed to be teaching last weekend, can take 24 hours with plane trips, waiting at airports, car rides, and all the rest of it. So how did you, do you survive that kind of thing? I survived it, and this might be of general interest, not just of nostalgic interest about the bardo of air travel in the past. Uh, I survived it by looking for stories, by being open to stories. I would say to strangers, I bet you have a story, and they might look uh, befuddled to begin with, but then something from their life starts coming out. And, you know, we are magnetic. This is one of the main themes of my new book and of the way I approach life. We are magnetic. And in one version, this is the simplistic New Age conception of the law of attraction. But it's true nonetheless. There's a sort of spiritual magnetism, psychic magnetism. So anyway, at a certain point in my air travels, I decided I didn't need a story that day because, you know, sometimes when you're traveling, the best stories come through a screw up. Something goes wrong, then you've got a story. If nothing goes wrong, it may not be much of a story. And I noticed that my stories were now coming at the price of more and more things going wrong, more delays, more hassle. So I'm actually arriving, I think it was at Oakland Airport. I'm arriving at Oakland Airport, and I'm actually saying as I walk into the terminal, I don't need a new story today. Well, it's lunchtime. I go to the bar. I'm in Australia, and I'll have a beer, of course. So I sit down, ready to order a beer, and there's a cheerful, ruddy-faced fellow sitting next to me at the bar. He says, you look like a fellow who'd like to hear a story, he says to me. <laughs> I said, okay, that's fine. He introduced himself. He's a retired cop, retired detective from the East Bay area. That's already interesting. So I'm listening, and we're clinking our glasses. He says, Robert, he's got my name now. I need to tell this story to someone. Happened this week. Yeah, okay, I live in Oregon now. Fine. I would like a gentleman farmer. Okay. What's the story? Well, I went to a graveyard this week. I'd never been to before. No particular reason. Just stop, take a leak, take a walk, something. I'm thinking about a girl I loved and could never have from 30 years ago. And I'm in the graveyard, says the retired cop. And I look down, and there is her name, her full-barreled name, all three parts of her name, on a headstone. I think this can't be. Date of death, last summer. No, it can't be. He says, and I called. It was her. She died. How is that possible? As far as I know, she was never in Oregon. How is it possible that I'm drawn to her headstone in this curious way? Well, I could have given her a lecture about synchronicity and, you know, the call of the departed and all that. I just said, well, that's a good story. It's a great story. So <laughs> that's that's an example of the, the magnetism. I mean, our energy, our, our, our passion, our interests are communicable. I mean, they, they, they attract or recoil or repel different people. I love stories. So all my life, I found that people are very willing to share their stories with me. And it's what I'd never counted the miles. I mean, I'd get frequent flyer totals from time to time, give myself a free ticket. But I don't think about things that way. I'm not a statistician. What I think about is all the stories. In fact, I have a have a book I might or might not publish someday with all the air travel stories in it. It's called The Bardo of Air Travel. It's very funny. But there are no airport newsstands to sell it on right now. So it probably do very well for airport sales when airports <laughs> open again. Uh, but it might have to wait for a bit or it'll seem like an antiquarian item. One of the chapters in your book, Growing Big Dreams, is about synchronicity. And it's a subject that Gary and I are very intrigued about. We talk about it and we noticed synchronicities uh, in our lives. 
There was something that you said that I heard for the very first time, and it caused quite a, a long conversation between Gary and me about synchronicity, and that was the idea that the physical and the psychical mirror one another. Now, we met at a, a um, Church of Religious Science, uh, Centers for Spiritual Living, where the philosophy is that your thoughts create things. And, and so we, we, you know, subscribe to that way of thinking, you know, be careful what you think about. But when we were reading it, there was something in what you wrote that said that the mirror goes both ways. And then uh, Gary was talking about an experience that he had where something physical resulted in something psychical, and that was the demonstration of how that mirror goes both ways. So why don't, well, you, why don't you tell that, Gary? And thank you for tossing that to me, Suzanne. Well done. <laughs> Uh, the short version is, Robert, I was on a plane after a, a long weekend in Reno. I was flying back to Seattle. I was reading a book on UFOs and alien abduction, which allowed my mind to wander. I didn't believe everything I was reading, and some of it intrigued me, but I just generally loosened up during this flight home of about an hour and a half duration. At some point, the altitude changed, and when that happened, my ears popped We've all experienced that. It was nothing bumpy or radical. It was just a shift in altitude. And when my ears popped, this thought bubbled up, as it were. And all of a sudden, I exclaimed, oh, I get it. Everything I've been wanting in life or planning to do is within me. I was looking outside myself for answers to life's questions when this information, this wisdom has been inside me all along. Okay. I think the Zen Buddhist might call that a sattari experience, but it was a bit of an awakening. And, and the the reason that I mentioned that is that, you know, for a long time we're thinking as we think, you know, as above, so below. So as we think, that is what we can expect to manifest in our physical world. But when you said the the mirror goes both ways, what happens in the physical world can also affect the psychic world. Well, Do I have that right? Jung and well, perhaps. You're, I think the mirror, the mirror uh, analogy works up to a certain point and then is not adequate because it goes beyond that. I mean, mind and matter are interwoven at every level of reality. I mean, there might, at a fundamental level of reality, be, be no distinction between them. Jung and Pauli, Wolfgang Pauli, the quantum pioneer, uh, in their work together, decided that we're dealing with what they called unus mundus, one world, in which physics and psyche are endlessly interwoven. You can't separate them. There's no separation between subjective, objective, in there and out there and all the rest of it. And this will shape the way that we understand reality and the way that reality interacts with us. So it's beyond the mirroring. It's the constant interweaving. And we see today in the work of leading edge scientists, when they say, what is reality really like? Well, John Wheeler said that. Reality is more like a dream than anything else. At the heart of everything else is the dance of consciousness, not the dance of matter, not the dance of particles. At the end of everything uh, is the dance of consciousness, and the composition of reality is more like a dream than like anything else. And we also notice the observer effect. I mean, we, we, we know about that from physics, or at least some of us know something about it. Well, it might be that everything that comes into our reality is the effect of us noticing it in a certain way, perceiving or imagining it in a certain way, and without that perception, 
it doesn't come into our reality. Gary was asking me lots of Australian South Pacific stories. I've read that when Captain Cook arrived in some of the Pacific Islands, the natives literally could not see him because they'd never seen a ship like his with those sails and they couldn't see it. They literally could not see it. Not just they couldn't understand it, they could not see it. So he arrives like an invisible ghost on an invisible UFO type vehicle because they can't see him. So all of this for me is about expanding our range of perception and recognizing that how we use or fail to use our imagination is going to generate what happens in our body and is going to generate our experience of the world. That doesn't mean we create our own reality 100% because there are many other people generating realities and there are reality bubbles. My God, we see this today in which people confine themselves and trap themselves and snare themselves. But, you know, the heart of the matter is that the imagination is an incredible creative engine. And uh, how we use or abuse our imagination will generate physical effects and it will reach other people and it will change things and it will influence the health or the illness of our body and it will certainly influence how we inhabit the world. There were two things in your book that really, really intrigued me and they're both very physical things about sleep and dreaming and they they just really grabbed a hold of me. And one of them was about um, you have been a lifelong biphasic sleeper. When I read your description of what that is, that is exactly the way a girlfriend of mine sleeps. And she has been upset because she is not getting an uninterrupted <laughs> night's sleep. When I read to her from your book about biphasic sleeping, she said, that's me, that's me, that's me. And so when you're, when you're trying to tap into the wealth of your dreams, one way has to do with how it is you're sleeping. And I wanted you to describe that for our listeners. Well, I wouldn't recommend that anybody copies my mode because I'm actually beyond a biphasic sleeper. I'm a polyphasic sleeper. I'm only a biphasic sleeper when I don't have the chance to take a nap during the day. If I can take a nap during the day, I'll then have one burst of sleep, often just an hour, some point during the day, maybe the late afternoon. Then I'll have at least two phases of sleep or something approaching sleep during the night, sometimes more. So that's at least three phases of sleep out of a 24-hour cycle, totaling maybe six hours, seven hours, um, you know. And I've been like that all my life. Uh, and I wouldn't recommend anybody else adopts that model. However, it has been characteristic for humans. We have a great deal of sleep research on this, the historians of the historians of sleep research, which says that until quite recently, until about the late 18th century, it was typical for humans to have at least two phases of sleep and regard that as normal. In fact, in the literature of England from the 18th century, you have people writing about first sleep and second sleep. And this is also characteristic of indigenous people. They're awake in the middle of the night, they're doing different things, wandering around, making love, sharing dreams, sharing dreams. Because if you have what is mis mistakenly called broken sleep of this kind, you're probably far more likely to remember dreams. And you're probably far more likely to be able to drift into that in-between liminal state I was describing earlier, that Tinkerbell state of hypnagogia between sleep and awake when images arise and fall. And is this abnormal? No, this was the normal mode of human relationship with sleep, waking and dreaming for thousands and thousands of years. It's only relatively recently with electric lighting and other things 
and with modern uh, sleep aid uh, advertising that we've been told you're supposed to lie down, go to bed and stay asleep for what, six, seven, eight hours? It's ridiculous. It's not the natural human cycle. Uh, it's, it's You can medicate yourself into that cycle. I guess you can program yourself into thinking of this is your necessary relationship with sleep. You can also give yourself a very hard time if you find yourself awake at some hour that seems funny to you, like three or four, and oh, I can't get to sleep, I've got insomnia. Nonsense. Don't feel like sleeping, do something else. You don't have to go and do all my dream stuff. You can go and watch TV, you can read a book, you can do something else. But don't lie whimpering and moaning because you're awake in the middle of the night. Those are very liminal creative periods of time. Three or four in the morning is prime time for me. I've always loved it. Even if I have to go to the airport at six o'clock in the morning, even if I haven't had that much sleep, if I keep myself energized, uh, excited in my mind, I I'm having fun. I can cope with that. So anyway, don't psych yourself into thinking or don't be programmed by other people into thinking that the correct relationship with sleep is you've got to lie, and lie down as if you're dead for six, seven, eight hours. Uh, not so. It's not the natural human cycle. But you don't have to copy me and become a polyphasic sleeper. No, you don't have to copy you, but I'm glad that you talked about the the uh, research on dreams so that people who do wake in the middle of the night maybe with some ideas, maybe problem solving, maybe going back into their dreams, can know that that is a perfectly normal way to be and not so abnormal. The The second thing that um, caught my attention very strongly was when you were describing what happens, what may happen as you are moving from the wakeful state to the sleep state, because your description of that is exactly what happens to me. And that is when I close my eyes, the first thing that I see is colors. And sometimes they come in phases where I have a, a lime green phase or a red phase or a purple phase. Right now I'm in a purple phase where I, I lie down and I see colors. And then you say geometric shapes. Again, I see triangles, I see circles, I see geometric shapes. I also see lava lamp type swirling around and going up and down. And then you might see faces. And I see a lot of faces when I'm going to sleep at night. And then you said, and landscapes. And I had to think about that because I'm not sure that I see landscapes. But you were saying first this, then this, then this, then this. And I'm going, that's me. That's me. And I haven't seen that written anywhere else either. But you yeah. described yeah. How, how it is I go to sleep. Do most people go to sleep like that? Uh, well, you're paying attention. I mean, many people are either not paying attention or else they just conk out because they're exhausted or they had too much to drink or they're on their meds or whatever. I think that many of us, if we're able to adopt a, a, a state of relaxed attention or attentive relaxation as you were doing when you report those visual impressions are going to pick up something like this people pick up auditory impressions too other senses might come into play um and they'll and you might find that the parade of faces stops being just a parade of faces and suddenly you're among people, drifting among people in a certain scene, and then you might be startled when one of them looks at you. And then who knows, an engagement might begin. I mean, not that long ago, I can't remember they put this in the book, but it's a typical example of the evolution of these this flow of rapid imagery and parade of faces into something more. I'm drifting in that state. I've got, I'm not trying to control or command anything. I'm just drifting in the state, open to experiences, rising and falling, not going to stay with anything unless I want to. And suddenly I'm among people on a bridge and I realize, oh, this is interesting. I'm on a bridge across the Bosporus between Europe and Asia. And I've been to Istanbul several times. 
I've driven across these bridges. I've taken ferries across the Bosporus. I'm on a bridge across the Bosporus. How interesting. And there's a woman looking at me, and I know she's very beautiful. Uh, I can only see her eyes, though. She's she's veiled, but she's veiled in white, in white. And she's looking at me, and I'm thinking, this is really interesting. She says to me, are you Turkish or Romanian? And I'm completely startled. It's got that objective quality. I'm not making this up in the sense that I'm projecting something, not as far as I know. I've been to both Turkey and Romania. It could be my material. But she has her own identity. And I'm so startled. I think I came out of the, out of the which is now a waking dream. It's a, it's a fully lucid dream. I never was asleep. And then I went back into the dream, which is a technique I teach people to use and develop and grow. I mean, you have a dream, you have an image, it's got some juice for you, uh, you've got some interest, uh, you can learn to go there again. So I made it my intention, again, in this in-between state in the middle of the night, to go back into that dream and talk to the woman, ask who she is. And I was able to do it. I'm with her. And she is a member, she's a female member of a Sufi order that accepts women. This order exists. I don't know very much about it. She'd come to convey an invitation from this order for them to study with me my approach for, to dream work and for me to study theirs. And the next day, synchronistically, a woman from Turkey contacts me and asks whether she could come to my training. So we've got a new Turkish connection with someone who knows about that tradition. Uh, maybe I'm going to too much detail, but the point is what is available in these states of consciousness is vast. It's vaster than we can describe in this show. It's vaster than I describe in my book. It is immense. Uh, in terms of, and maybe in these strange times we're in, some of the things to know is, hey, there's survival material here. You can see what's coming next week or next month, and you don't need to see it for the whole horrible possible history of the world. You can see it for situations that you can influence uh, and for which you can take remedial action. And in terms of your entertainment, your safety, your well-being, your mental and emotional health right now, recognize this. Dreaming you can travel without leaving home. You're simply doing it whether or not you intend to. Why not bring back more memories? Why not bring back the movie tickets uh, to, to, to hold something in your mind? Dreaming you can be as social as you like. You don't need to mask up. You don't have to keep six feet or 12 feet so-called social distancing. And dreaming you have access to worlds of possibility and adventure and romance and healing beyond the obvious. All of this is waiting for you. Now, you know, you've got the material. You've got the start. You, you, are you going to be a world-class streamer like Jung or like Wolfgang Pauli? Uh, maybe not, but not everybody can fall down a mountain and becomes an Olympic skier. It requires practice, practice, practice. So you have to make some kind of commitment and find yourself, you know, willing to do that. And that leads me to ask you in the waning moments of our hour together, how do you teach people to first turn their dreams aspirational? We talked about demand versus request, and request sounds a lot more inviting to our subconscious mind. But when somebody says, I really dream of a big job or getting married to the perfect partner, how do you get them to treat their dreams aspirationally? Well, begin by recognizing that you're a time traveler in your dreams. You're traveling into the possible future probably every night, even the most prolific dreamer and even the dreamer most oriented towards this aspect of dreaming won't remember very much. And I frankly don't want to know more than I need to know. But dreams will give you clues to the future. And in dreams, you will, for example, be making some rehearsal of options that might be waiting for you. 
in, in terms of getting, in terms of being aspirational, in terms of getting to where you would really like to be, it's helpful to be clear that you are setting your aspirations from the right center in your being. If you're just projecting a grocery list of ego calculations and ambitions, you may not do all that well, or you might do well, good luck to you. But I think it begins with finding the place in yourself, maybe the place in your heart, the place in your soul, the place in your greater self, where on a deep level, you know what you truly desire. So it's not just a grocery list. Give me this, give me that, give me this house, give me this job, give me the sex, give me that. What is it that your heart desires? And I begin the new book by saying the first chapter is called, you know, your dreams show you the secret wishes of your soul. This is what I learned from an indigenous tradition, indigenous North American tradition. I was called to by my dreams. I had to learn the language. I, had, I mean, I had to learn the language. I had to study archaic Mohawk and Huron Wendat. You won't find many people who've done that in order to understand the dreams. And I found myself in a tr tradition which understood probably what all our ancestors understood, which is one of the functions of dreaming is to connect us with deeper meaning and purpose in our lives, to find what the soul wants as opposed to the ego. And if you're going to be aspirational, for goodness sake, do it from your heart's desires. Do it from your soul's objectives and not just from this confusion and of calculation and fear that, that, that bats around in the ego. The kahunas of Hawaii say, if you want to manifest something worthwhile, if you want to be aspirational in that sense, you need to bring the body wisdom, the raw wisdom of the body together with the understanding of the higher self and educate and bring along the, the middle self, the egoic self. Otherwise, you'll never get there. Okay, so, you know, let your larger purpose find you. I'm remembering now at a moment when I was living on the farm, a farm I bought because of a message from a red-tailed hawk under an old white oak tree behind the house. Talk about synchronicity. And I dreamed one night that there was a knock on my door at three o'clock, and I got up in the dream, not knowing yet it was a dream, and there in the moonlight is a pleasant-looking fellow with a rather extreme grin on his face. I think, oh, God, I've got a Jesus freak or someone peddling religion, and he looks a bit simple. He says, I come from my father's house, and this somehow takes me deep, and he mentions the Scottish family name of my father's clan. And then he says, what is your contract with God? And this is not a Jesus freak. I wake up trembling. Contract with God? I mean, it's his language more than mine, but that means that I have some deeper purpose, and if that is so, how could I have forgotten it? Now, now, Gary, that set me on a quest to remember what we could call the sacred contract. Why am I here in the first place? What have I left undone? If I fulfilled one contract, is there a new one? So I got aspirational about that, not just setting a grocery list of objectives, but trying to make sure I am and will continue to fulfill my sacred purpose in this world as I can best understand it. And dreams will help with that. They will show you the ways. It's so encouraging to hear you talk about this vast universe within a universe, the dream world and the dream time, no matter which culture you're in. Thank you so much for your time, Robert Moss. The book, once again, Growing Big Dreams, Manifesting Your Heart's Desires Through 12 Secrets of the Imagination. Robert Moss, you're a man of deep learning and we're privileged to have you with us and must have you again much sooner next time because you have so much good to share. Well, Gary, Suzanne, and everybody listening, thank you. And here's a dreamer's wish for you. May you dream big and may your big dreams manifest in the world. Ah, thank you. Well said. Stay tuned. Coming up is Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience, followed by American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. And today, special guest Suzanne Mitchell, as there we talk go. about the first Thanksgiving. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us. 
We will be back tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific. Tune in when you're away from a radio. How about 1150kknw.com for the live stream? Stay tuned. Have fun. Happy Thanksgiving. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.